Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and this podcast is the third in a series I'm conducting with Nobody Left Outside, NLO for short. The NLO is a collective of organizations representing people in some of the most marginalized communities in Europe, including homeless people, LGTBI people, people who use drugs, prisoners, sex workers, and undocumented migrants. People in these groups are known to be at greater risk of poor health, while at the same time facing many barriers in accessing health care. The COVID-19 crisis has brought into sharp focus the stark inequalities in access to health and social services for marginalized people, who often exist outside formal health care and social support systems. While COVID-19 has affected the entire population, marginalized communities have faced particular challenges requiring specific policy responses. But the pandemic has also created a critical momentum for supporting a greater role for the EU in public health and health system preparedness, pushing these issues very firmly to the top of the political agenda. With this podcast series, we would like to build on this momentum, casting a spotlight on the situation of marginalized people in Europe during the NLO week to create time and space for representatives of these communities to share their first-hand experience, challenges and potential solutions. The NLO initiative as a whole, NLO Week 2020, and this podcast series have been initiated and are supported financially by MSD, though the views expressed in this podcast are those of the invited guests and not necessarily those of MSD. For further background information, you can go to the NLO website, nobodyleftoutside.eu. Now let me turn to my guests. Tatiana Budsetti, a policy officer at the WHO European Office for Investment for Health and Development. Anne Isabel von Lingen, Program Manager, and Mario Cassio of the European AIDS Treatment Group, EATG, and Roberto Perez Gallo, Project Officer at Correlation, the European Harm Reduction Network. But before we start our conversation, everybody, why don't I ask you briefly to tell me, tell us all about what you do and what your organization does. So starting first of all with Tatiana. Over to you, Tatiana. Hello. Nice to be with you today. Uh, following the commitment of leaving no one behind that is current uh, very centrally placed in a global general program of work as well as in European program of work, WHO is working on two fronts addressing COVID-19 pandemics. The first one is emergency response and the second one is mid-term to long-term transition and recovery. And coming from the Venice office, the WHO European Office for Investment for Health and Development uh, that is focusing on equity and underlying conditions in order to prevent uh, leaving uh, no one behind uh, is uh, our work very much uh, framed around uh, identifying inequities, uh, mapping, measuring vulnerabilities, uh, looking and advocating for opportunities for investment into health system and broadly in general into health for all. So how can we in a society, in the country, in a local community, in a region, create policies, uh, create intervention that are equity focused and are from the scratch, from the start, in developing, in implementing, in evaluation, looking that we don't leave anyone behind. Thank you very much, Tatiana. Um, Anne-Isabel, tell us about the European AIDS Treatment Group. Thank <laughs> you. 
Good morning, everyone. So the European AIDS Treatment Group um, is a patient-led network of around 185, uh, 180 members sorry, from 47 countries across Europe and Central Asia. And our members are persons living with HIV, or representative of different communities that are most, effective, most affected by, by HIV, as well as co-infections. The European AIDS Treatment Group has been at the forefront of the civil society response to the HIV epidemic in Europe and Central Asia. And we represent the interest of people living with and affected by HIV and related co-infections. Um, our work is uh, structured around three programs, combination prevention to, to scale up the use of combination prevention tools like testing, PrEP, uh, treatment as prevention, vaccines, etc., harm reduction. Um, partners in science, meaning community involvement in research for new health te technology solutions, and quality of life, community involvement in improving health-related quality of life. And as far as the uh, COVID um, response is concerned, we've been focused on documenting the impact on, uh, on our communities and solutions found to practical problems, supporting mutual learning between community organizations and engaging in advocacy for improving the, the response, taking into consideration our, our needs. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Isabel. And Roberto, tell us about your organization. Thank you so much for inviting. Uh, yeah, my name is Roberto Perez Tallo and I work for Correlation, the European Harm Reduction Network. Correlation is a European civility, civil society network and a center of expertise in the field of drug use, harm reduction and social inclusion. Since 2004, the network has been bringing together practice, research and policy, connecting in this way harm reduction services, grassroots and community organizations, research, policymakers and institutions from all over Europe. To offer a bit of a background, uh, I will briefly mention that Correlation organizes their activities around four main pillars, which are networking, monitoring and data collection, particularly from the point of a civil society point of view, capacity building advocacy. And uh, at the moment, we are articulating these four main pillars around three thematic areas, which is drug use and hepatitis C, uh, overdose prevention and new drugs and new patterns of consumption. Okay, thank you very much, Roberto. So um, these podcasts are very much looking to the future and trying to collect, uh, share collective knowledge and, ex and experiences to, to find solutions to, to keep addressing this ongoing crisis we're all still facing. But we do that. Before we do that, let's look back briefly to, to the, the past six, seven months since the, the pandemic first, uh, first arrived. So starting with you, Tatiana, what do you think have been one or two of the main lessons learned from the WHO's perspective? So even if you look that uh, the trigger for the current crisis, uh, could you say it was some health issue, we have to recognize that it's much more comprehensive and that it needs also very complex um, response uh, in order to overcome it. And that we have to um, jointly in a way address it, I think that's the biggest learning, that it's very difficult to only uh, work in a sectors, uh, not connecting to others as we see for all country responses that they uh, very uh, actively from the scratch uh, addressed it very uh, 
multi-sectorally, so whole of government um, approach was utilized as well as uh, whole of society, of, of society. And that is a big learning from, from the past, uh, which needs to take, uh, be maybe strengthened. That uh, the learnings include also the way forward strengthening uh, in terms of transition and um, longer-term uh, recovery planning that includes health, that includes social and other sectors to seeing for new uh, sustainable solutions that uh, are guaranteeing health and uh, well-being for all. Tatiana, if I may interrupt you, what do you mean by transition? I don't quite understand what you mean by transition. Okay, uh, maybe that's a bit our uh, jargon in WHO, but how do we come out of the right. crisis when okay, we, are talking, we are talking about health, but at the same time when we are looking into underlying condition of inequities, we are seeing that a lot of... Um, proposed mitigation uh, measures are depending on the living conditions in which people are, on the income security, uh, if they can afford to comply or not, uh, in terms of what is the social and human capital in the communities and what can we uh, utilize as assets. So right. not only looking into deficiency model, but also looking what assets can be already employed. And here are great learnings we can also have from the communities of marginalized groups and how solutions are co-produced and right. all the underlying condition also including employment and working conditions are addressed right so well, social Tatiana, we'll, connection we'll, we'll, including all that right let me interrupt you sorry forgive me Tatiana so we'll come to the the solutions part you mentioned solutions we'll come to that uh, in a moment so uh, let me now bring in Mario if I may Mario so what has been the the particular impact of uh, people living with HIV and co-infections of the of the COVID-19 uh, virus well, uh, well, since April, uh, EATG has been monitoring the situation through its members across the WHO Europe. We have been reporting disruptions and all responses to HIV uh, in HIV services. I mean, uh, we see that all areas of healthcare in general have been affected by COVID, with services limited only to emergency cases. But HIV services have been particularly impacted because when we consider that infectious disease doctors, nurses, have often been uh, called to work in COVID units. And we must also keep in mind that we're talking about disruptions to essential services to a life-threatening condition. We have seen uh, significant disruptions in most testing services, for example. Uh, lockdowns have meant the closure of most checkpoints in Europe and other community-based services. The same has happened with consultations and regular blood test sampling and the same with viral hepatitis screening and treatment, the same with specialist services, which are extremely important for people living with HIV, who are often suffering also from other comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, and liver disease. In particular, I would like to focus here on the fact that uh, people living with HIV are disproportionately affected also by mental health problems. The psycho I mean, the psychological stress that COVID has created has regarded all communities, 
Well, we don't really know what the long-term consequences will be for people living with HIV in terms both of their care and overall well-being. Well, well, Mario, on that one, it seems to me, if I may say, that it's a question there for a capacity of health, of health services uh, at the national level. And do you, have a, do you have any sense, any reassurance that over time that uh, there's a greater recognition that, that your, the people you represent are, are starting to get and will in the future get better, better access to health care or not? Well, this is one of the problems that we pose uh, to ourselves today. I mean, uh, what will happen also in the, in the post-COVID era, okay? Even now, we are experiencing the fact that many uh, services, uh, HIV services, have been only partially reactivated. I've been to a meeting a few days ago with many uh, infectious disease doctors here in Italy, and uh, at the same time, they're seeing that there, has, there is a resurgence in cases in Italy, like in many parts of Europe now, for example, yeah. and that they are coping uh, with the, what, uh, what they can offer today to people living with HIV, which has normally been, uh, I mean, what, 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 uh, they're, they're preparing for plans for uh, this future uh, period now, which is it's not actually a post-COVID area, but it's, it's still a COVID area. You know? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mario. Let me bring also in Roberto. A similar question to you, Roberto, as I asked Mario. What is the, from your point of view, the specific and ongoing challenges that are uh, faced by people who use drugs of the, of the COVID-19 situation? I mean, I have to start by saying that it's a bit of a complicated to create a bit of a general view because people who use drugs, I mean, as well as people living with HIV are not in homogeneous groups. And then individuals are in different positions of privilege or vulnerability. And also we are observing like big differences of uh, geographically between different parts of Europe. However, there is a few kind of like different traits that we are seeing. Uh, one of the main big topics that we have been dealing with and observing is like the disruption of drug uh, using equipment uh, and also like the associated increment of risk of transmissible disease such as viral hepatitis and HIV. Also there has been in many different cases in Europe we have been seeing disclosure and disruption of harm reduction services in general. And this is quite crucial because often uh, harm reduction services are the only contact point for people who use drugs and others to have access to health and support services. We have seen disruptions in the deliver and shortages of life-saving medicines such as naloxone, but not only. For example, there has been also HIV shortages in Romania, Albania, Ukraine, even Italy. Testing and treatment, for example, has been something quite crucial, whether it has been HIV or hepatitis C. Taking the, the, yeah, the example of, for example, of two months interruption in the Czech Republic, but also like HIV testing was interrupted in Lithuania. Uh, for those which actually have the capacity to be in, in a house, in a home, we have seen an increment in the overdose risk that is also like uh, related to being isolated and using alone. We have seen an increment of domestic violence. We have seen an increase in the need of mental health support. And we have seen overall like an increased vulnerability in public space and an increase of violence of the communities we work with by police violence and by the effects of the, of the enforcement of confinement. Right. Well, Roberto, could I ask you, though, do you, do you, do you have a sense as the, the months go by that there is a great awareness and appreciation of these issues you're, you're talking about from the point of view of the policymakers and the politicians, or are they simply so overwhelmed by dealing with the, if you may call it, the kind of the core issues around COVID that they have, simply haven't got the, 
the, the, the attention span to, to address the issues you've been talking about? I think there is an acknowledgement of the importance of harm reduction services and how fundamental they have been doing and how important has been especially outreach services and professional street-based services in connecting with people. I still feel that there is a bit of an awareness into making all of these uh, responses that they are coming from the civil society sustainable. And that's like the part that still we are observing that is a bit of a struggle. Identifying what has been like the adaptations that they are successful, why they have been successful, and support civil society and community-based organizations continue developing the care and the support that have been doing independently and in parallel sometimes from official organizations. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Roberto. I go back to you, Tatiana. You said uh, just now about we need to talk about solutions. I think you, I can't remember the precise wording you used, but also obviously working alongside civil society groups uh, and other organizations. How, how, is that, how does that work in practice? Does the, the WHO have this kind of convening function and is it recognized by the other stakeholders? Let me take the example of our collaboration. Um, Basically, all WHO is working in uh, network, partnership networks, uh, policy networks, emergency networks, and trying to get as quickly the information from the ground. So once uh, we've seen the pandemic hitting uh, across the region, we started to have intensive discussion with our policy networks. And that was also kind of starting point where we uh, start to discuss with uh, No One Left Outside initiative to bring closer to us to the, uh, and to the policymakers the lived experience. Because we too often end up with the average person that's not existing and then it's very difficult to make the response to that. And based on that um, report, the policy paper, um, COVID-19 in marginalized groups, uh, challenges, action, and voices, basically we took the key messages now into the fact sheets where we complemented with effective response and sustainable actions, recommendations for the member states to address vulnerability upfront. So that's one uh, example of the pathways, uh, how our guidances are being developed and how we are bringing more and more real-life cases and the participatory way of developing and designing it in emergency response, but also now in more into mid-term and long-term planning for the development plans, uh, how to come out of them pandemics the best sustainable way and how to plan for the better future. Uh, if I name maybe only two another uh, products or uh, initiatives that are also building very much on the participatory approach. One is um, the Venice office um, developing um, leaving no one behind country health impact assessment tool that has been developed together with country um, teams and is currently being tested in Macedonia to, as I mentioned, plan better for the recovery and um, development. And then University Lancaster, 
joint project on uh, collecting the lived experience of people living in different vulnerable conditions through community bloggers platform. So engaging people uh, in the communities to write up challenges, to write up uh, experiences, how they address, how they face with them, what they uh, feel important, prioritized, and how solutions can be co-produced. And oh. that will uh, be then synthesized and uh, integrated also in the guidances and uh, later on in the policy development processes. Thank you, Tatiana. Well, maybe a, quite a direct uh, question then to either Anne Isabella, Mario and Roberto from the civil society uh, perspective. To what extent organizations, especially the WHO, uh, like the WHO, uh, are they, do you feel they are responding in a, in, a, in a rapid enough way, an agile enough way, given that they are quite large organizations, to the kind of issues that you've been describing? Uh, and if not, do you, can you give any suggestions to how they and others, not just the WHO, could could, uh, could improve their performance going forward if it needs to be improved at all in the first place. Uh, Anna Isabel or Mario, over to you. As we mentioned, um, as uh, Roberto and Mario mentioned, uh, community organizations have been quite um, filling in gaps left by the disruption in providing essential services. And this needs to be, to be recognized that these organizations are working as part of the health systems. Um, and this uh, needs to be really strengthened. And uh, it's good to hear that, that this community and participatory approach is being promoted by, by WHO. Um, also, uh, considering that if services are repurposed, they need to be repurposed uh, wisely. Um, it was very helpful um, that WHO recently org and ECDC organized a, a meeting uh, of national... WHO and what? EC what? Uh, ECDC, um, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, Thank you. Um, joined forces to organize a meeting with a national um, uh, program managers, at, so local authorities, donors and a community organization to, to talk about the impact and um, and what has been done and still can be done. And I think that that role of convening and bringing together um, local authorities with community organization and group and support this kind of mutual uh, yeah. learning is incredibly, um, is incredibly useful, but also to make sure that because sometimes the perspective of uh, local authorities and community organization might be a bit different. So I think it's... Uh, to keep also local authority uh, accountable, right. so right. I think that will be critical in the in the coming period as we yeah as we go okay. forward. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Isabel. Yeah, Mario, please come in. Yeah. Okay, I think WHO in somehow uh, has uh, shown support, for example, to our NLO uh, initiative, and also to the fact that like the work they were doing with uh, Tatiana was talking about giving voices to the community but we're talking about real people, and so uh, real people, and uh, sometimes, you know, words are not sufficient in this case. And uh, at the same time, I think also WHO is moving in the direction of rec acknowledging, okay, that there are many uh, actions and uh, activities from community-based organizations which are, uh, have, are making a difference at local level. And uh, this is one of the elements we have been using also uh, within our EATG work, which is that of bringing, bringing together uh, or, uh, organizations, the work they're doing, 
and exchanging best practices and learning from each other. This has been an, a key element during the COVID uh, pandemic, for example. And I think it's something to, uh, to expand on. Yeah, thank you, Mario. Roberto, do you have the same experience that uh, there is a, a growing significant amount of uh, exchange of best practice and just sharing experiences? Uh, I think I agree with Marion, with Annabella, what they are like bringing forward to the table. I also really think that this moment with the NLO, like the preparation of this briefing paper is an example of starting how to co-create these responses. And I think it's also more importantly a first starting point into understanding what are the intersections of vulnerabilities, not only the individual vulnerabilities that our communities are facing, but also what are the intersections among them, because oftentimes, sometimes, things start to get uh, categorized under vulnerable populations without really unpacking uh, how these vulnerabilities created and whether in the successful vulnerability. One of the things that uh, in our case we are experiencing that we are seeing is in the last period, particularly in the during the COVID-19, we are seeing how harm reduction is disappearing from many countries. So I is actually struggling to see. It's like in the last months, harm reduction, for example, in Bulgaria is completely disappeared and gone, and also like there's difficulties in Romania and many places. And one of the things that the WHO could continue doing, for example, is championing support for harm reduction and championing support for all of these community-based services. They are actually working and at the moment are disappearing. So that's one of the things that, for example, in a much more explicit advocacy way can be supporting civil society organization with the work we are doing. Thank you, Robert. We're coming to the end of this fascinating discussion, uh, so I have to bring this to a close. But you may remember, as I said in my introduction, that the, the pandemic has also had the effect of uh, creating a critical momentum, uh, a greater role for the EU in public health. So I'd like you all to, to imagine yourselves uh, invited by the European Council, Europe's leaders, to a, a member of the European Council, and you're given the brief speaking slot, each of you, to, to not just make a plea, but also make a a suggestion or a recommendation on how the EU collectively could could help and do more uh, going forward to, to, to deal with the COVID-19 situation we all find ourselves in. I mean, you may find it odd, Tatiana, that you're not an advocate or, or a civil society organization, but nonetheless, you have been invited for this purpose of this exercise by the European Council, or WHO, to, to say something. So what would be your suggestion or recommendation to EU's leaders? First of all, recognizing the different and complex needs of those falling behind uh, and recognition that uh, health providers uh, and also supporting providers need to match services uh, and the health care uh, workforce to meet these needs. So if we look within the health system and to use innovation in delivery modes, including also for the outreach uh, services. Complementing this with longer term actions to address common causes of vulnerability that are often beyond health system, like uh, guaranteeing access to social and health services, but also to safe and fair working conditions, to look how to guarantee adequate minimum income, uh, address migrants and sex workers legislation, for example, uh, fight stigma and similar actions in a comprehensive manner. As I started the, uh, with the comment that the vulnerability is health vulnerability, but it's also beyond 
and includes economic, political, and uh, social vulnerabilities that often in the end impact the health outcome of the person or the population. Th thank you, Tatiana. And Isabel? So I think the the, um, the role of the, the the European Commission will be quite crucial in in the coming in the coming months. And now it's interesting that the the Commission member states and the European Parliament are discussing the the future health program, EU health program. And I think from what I can see, it has recognized um, the issue of the vulnerabilities and the lack of preparedness, and it has integrated that into the um, sort of into the debate. At the same time, now there is kind of an over-focus on on, um, on preparedness for pandemics and the 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 focus on overcoming or reducing health inequalities in general has been a bit lost. Um, so we have a bit of an unbalanced uh, proposal. And for instance, communicable diseases, which disproportionately uh, burden some of the communities. Um, that are left uh, left behind is also uh, reduced in the current uh, debate. So I think while we understand the the, the need to address pandemic and the, the the reduced budget that the EU has, I think it has to be more ambitious to address the the structural factors uh, creating this uh, this these health inequalities. Um, okay. And also supporting the, the civil society response and um, as a and the, the co-design and, and collaboration, because okay. now it's also reduced. Okay, thank you, Anne Isabel. Uh, Mario, briefly. I can just add to what Anise was saying. We add the fact that okay, uh, well, mental health, for example, is one of the things. One of the, as I said before, I think it's one of the things that will be impacting uh, the lives. Of, uh, of people, uh, especially of people uh, living uh, uh, among the, these marginalized uh, uh, populations we are talking about here today. And at the EU level, okay, there was a, a, an initial input in uh, uh, bringing, uh, keeping mental health as a prominent issue. But we're seeing, like uh, as in Anis was saying, that in the current debate, it has started to lose, uh, let's say, some visibility. So I would uh, really uh, uh, <clears throat> strongly advocate for bringing back some of the issues which are related to uh, the mental health issues uh, during COVID and also post-COVID. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mario. And the last word to you, Roberto. I think that one of the things that has become even much more clear, because already was clear, is the effect and the impact of social determinants on health, particularly marked by inequalities and exclusionary patterns. And then we are starting to see how harms and risks are not only socially inane, but actually oftentimes are reproduced. So if we are going to be looking at how to ensure that services are reaching everyone and inequities and poor health determinants are addressed, for us, one of the things that should be already touched upon and needs to be spoken about is the role of decriminalization, as is one of the cut-crossing elements that connects many of the communities we work in the NLO, with the discriminalization of sex work, criminalization of drug use or drug users, criminalization mm -hmm. of certain effects of poverty. That's something that needs to be completely responded and approached. It's a good moment, and there is a momentum for speaking about this, and 
decriminalization has been proved to work, but too few countries are taking the bold step. More recent cases, for example, like in Portugal, is showing defects. Also historical ones like in the Netherlands or the country like Switzerland. And at the same time, very much linked with this uh, stigma and, uh, and discrimination is something that we need to be completely like putting forward as prioritarian to be touching upon. Okay, thank you very much. Well, we have to bring this to a close. Uh, thank you all very much, Tatiana and Isabel, Mario and Roberto. It's been a great discussion. Thank you again.